duty to shine the light of truth, to bring justice to the restless souls whose lives were lost to their hands. Rise up against the evildoers of this world so that their souls may have peace. We will not surrender. We will fight. We will stand for what is right because we are the justice warriors. Hello, justice warriors. Tracy and I have been busy behind the scenes with some very exciting things that we cannot wait to share but we just can't yet. Very soon though, I promise. In the meantime, we've had some time to study up on some very interesting cases, and this episode will be the first of our new series in which we'll dive deep into the world of serial killers. This episode in particular is one that Tracy and I have had in our back pocket for a while now, and Tracy has been chomping at the bit for a chance to discuss the gruesome acts of this sick motherfucker. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, wow, you put it that way. <laughs> I did. I just, I just said it how I felt I'm it. Chomping so, at the Tracy. Bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, she sent me this material to look over months ago, and I just kept putting it off and putting it off, been really busy and just some other things going on as usual. But um, so Tracy, since this is your baby, I'm going to give you the honor of introducing him to the audience. What is his name and what about this person got your attention? Well, I won't call it an honor because he is, like you said, one sick so well you said motherfucker but i'm saying sob his name is john wayne gacy which i'm sure most people know of the name he was the killer clown and he was uh he was convicted of killing 33 young men or boys he was a contractor, so he had people, actually, some of these kids, he hired them to work for him. And he'd actually have them bury their own, I mean, excavate their own grave, and they had no idea what they were digging. And that's where they would be buried. That's crazy. And before we really get too deep into um, the details about him, I wanted to mention just some little facts about serial killers. And I, I did a little bit of studying up on this. And since we're going to be doing this series on serial killers, I wanted to look into the different types of serial killers. And what I found was that there are four major types of serial killers. They're visionary, mission, hedonistic, and power. Um, does that ring a bell? Have you ever looked into that, Tracy? Uh, not the four as far as that goes, just so everyone knows. I, um, since I've been in high school, I have been studying serial killers. Um, but there are, uh, there are different type of serial killers as far as how they do their killing. So visionary is a person who believes that a person or entity is commanding them to kill. Uh, most of these types of serial killers suffer from psychosis. And then another type is mission-oriented. Mission-oriented serial killers kill in order to rid society of a certain group of people. And then hedonistic is someone who commits his or her act for their own personal pleasure. For example, rape, torture, or money. And then there's power and control. 
uh, serial killers that kill for power and control fantasize about having the power and seek to dominate and control their victims. Is that kind of what you were talking about? No, I am talking about the organized and the unorganized serial killer. Organized and disorganized, right. The visionary killer is someone who kills because they believe that the entity is commanding them to. They are uh, classified as disorganized and also, like I said, yeah, suffering from psychosis. Uh-huh, and they tend to not hide a victim or bury a victim. The victim right. is just right there, right there. They don't um, go into the the ritual. Mm -hmm. Yep. That little to no effort at all in covering up their crimes. Um, and also visionary killers don't specifically target their victims. Um, they don't have a, a certain type and they don't stalk their victims. It's usually very random. So it makes long, it makes it very difficult for law enforcement to piece it together. And a lot of times these are the ones that get away with it because there's really no rhyme or reason to what they're doing. Mission-oriented serial killers, they are not psychotic. Unlike the visionary killer, they are not out of touch with reality, and they don't suffer from hallucinations or delusions. Um, God or some other entity is not necessarily com uh, commanding them to commit these acts. Uh, they make the decision to kill by themselves. So they are very organized. They plan their crimes. They do not suffer from psychosis. They do target a specific group or type of person. They kill quickly and efficiently, and um, they typically avoid close contact with other individuals. So uh, I, what I want to do with our series is at the end of each episode, I want us to discuss what type of serial killer that particular person was. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. Were they organized, disorganized? Were they, you know, what was their reasoning? But some of them, some of them will, uh, will bleed into the others like uh, Ted Bundy, which everybody knows he was, um, he was very organized in the beginning. And then when he went to the uh, Chi Omega at uh, Florida state university, um, he just, you know. He was classified as a power control um, serial killer, I believe. At the end, he just went nuts. He just, with a tree branch, he just he just went nuts and everybody was left there. There was nothing, no one was hidden. He just, he just went nuts in there. And um, the, prior to all that, he seemed to be a stalker type of, of killer. So maybe, you know, being somewhat of, of, of an addiction, causing a high, he lost himself to the addiction and psychosis set in. So Correct. initially he had like some sort of control over what he was doing. It was calculated. It was organized. But then the addiction took over, psychosis set in, and he became uh, disorganized. And It was all fantasy. Yep. So... So he would be, um, you know, he may have crossed over from one to the other, been a combination of more than one type of serial killer. But so the hedonistic serial killer is a type of serial killer who kills for pleasure, like we mentioned. And so a lot of times their, 
their uh, motive is lust or just the high, the thrill, the comfort. Which is most of the popular ones that we, BTK, Green River Killer, uh, Ted Bundy, uh, Gacy, these tend to be the, this, the kind that the media picks up on the most. They rape, they torture, they mutilate because it gives them sexual gratification. They fantasize about violence. They can find it very difficult to control their impulses. They, pre they prefer close contact. Um, they will use knives or hands instead of guns. Um, these are the sort of things that really... They want to watch the face of the victim and hear their cries. It, it gives them a um, pleasure, like you said. And they are the ones also who will often take trophies from their victims in order to remind themselves to kind of, they, you know, they get this nostalgic feeling from, from the item that they took when they hold it or look at it or do whatever they do with it. They also go to necrophilia and go back to their victims. They're, they're the ones who often return to the crime scene in order to relive the murder. Um, and like you said, uh, will often mutilate the body and engage in necrophilia. A thrill killer is a hedonistic serial killer. Which would be Bonnie and Clyde, correct? Yeah, I think so. They robbed them, but they didn't need to kill them. They killed them for the pure sake of killing them. The act of murdering someone excites them. They enjoy the hunt and they get off on their victim's terror. They often feel inadequate and powerless. They lose interest with the victim after death. Let's see. Comfort killers kill for the sake of money and wealth, will often use poison, avoid close contact. Their murders are meant to, are means to an end. They won't take the pleasure. They don't take pleasure in the kill and they can wait a long time between murders. A power control serial killer is someone who seeks to gain power and control over their victims. This is the fourth and final category of the types of serial killers. And it's also one of the most common types. Um, these people, they seek to gain control over their victims. They have feelings of inadequacy. They're petrified of rejection. Um, they're calm, they're meticulous, and they're patient. And they also may keep souvenirs of their victims. See, I would, I don't know. I'm having a hard time putting them in a separate category with a heinous, you know, it's just, it's, they, they share so many traits. I wonder what the major difference is to be that they would be a separate from that. From that right. Category. Well, and so I'm referring right now uh, to a website, thisinterestsme.com, um, and their page on serial killers. And at the bottom of the page, after they kind of go through the different categories, it says um, these types of serial killers can overlap. Um, okay. So a killer can be a power control killer that also has certain characteristics of a thrill killer, um, you know, vice versa. I mean, there's just a lot of different ways it can go. It's, it's never, you know, a lot of times it's not cut and dry. And like we talked about before with Ted Bundy, he may have actually, you know, evolved or di digressed rather from one to the other uh, once that, you know, addiction really set in. So these categories that you have, I am not accustomed to hearing any of them. I always went with um, Wrestler and uh, I can't think of the other guys. I've got all their books. 
but um, where it's organized or unorganized. Back to John Wayne Gacy. You know, it's really interesting because, like I said, you've been kind of on me for a while wanting to discuss serial killers and specifically John Wayne Gacy. And um, you'd sent me all this material. And then I went up to my library um, in my office and, you know, I have these uh, true crime time life books. Um, and oh, I know someone else that's mentioned that they had those too. Yeah. And in these mm-hmm. books, um, you know, there's different, uh, there's like one on mafia, there's one on crimes of passion, and there's one on serial killers. And John Wayne Gacy is one of the four that is covered in this book. So I didn't even realize that, that, that I actually have a book on him. Um, but so I took some time to kind of look over that and it is really fascinating. This is what I've gathered so far about Gacy. Gacy's murdering spree, which seemed to be mostly based in suburban streets of Chicago, lasted about six years between 1972 and 1978 and claimed the lives of at least 33 young men, most of which were buried in a crawl space under his home. Gacy confessed to the killings after his arrest on December 21st, 1978, and all but six of his victims were identified. The identified victims were 16-year-old Timothy Jack McCoy, 18-year-old John Butkovich, 19-year-old Daryl Sampson, 14-year-old Daniel, I'm sorry, Samuel Stapleton, 15-year-old Randall Raffett, 17-year-old Michael Bonin, 16-year-old William Carroll, 16-year-old Jimmy Hakinson, 17-year-old Rick Johnston, 19-year-old William Bundy, 14-year-old Michael Moreno, 16-year-old Kenneth Parker, 17-year-old Gregory Godzik, okay, 19-year-old John Sissick, 20-year-old John Prestige, 18-year-old Matthew, ba- uh, Matthew Bowman, 18-year-old Robert Gilroy, 19-year-old John Mowry, 21-year-old Russell Nelson, 18-year-old Robert Winch, 20-year-old Tommy Bowling, 20-year-old David Talsma, 19-year-old William Kindred, 20-year-old Timothy O'Rourke, 19-year-old Frank Landingen, 20-year-old James Mazzara, also known as Mojo, 15-year-old Robert Peast. Tracy, I know that this is one of the cases that really got your attention since you're the one that brought it to me to cover on the podcast. So I'll start by asking, what have you discovered about this Gacy character? Like, where was he from? Where did he grow up? What was his family like? He was um, born March 17th, 1942 in Chicago, Illinois. He, lethal injection for the killings that he committed on May 10th, 1994, at the Stateville Correctional Center, Crest Hill, Illinois. As a child, like many serial killers, but also like many people in the regular walks of life, uh, had a brain, uh, had a head injury. I'm not saying brain injury, but a head injury. And he also suffered from seizures as a child. He um, was... Married twice, divorced twice. His first wife left with his children and never contacted them again. That was, uh, they severed that relationship. 
and his second wife had came into the marriage with two children, two girls, and they said that he was the best father when watching this. I'm watching a special, six series special on Peacock called John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise. And the, the mother the, of these two young girls, his second wife, said he was an excellent father. So it's kind of very, very strange how he is so one person and then another person in another, in another way. He was very manipulative. He was, in, in those days, his father was, was very a, beyond disciplinarian. He was, he, he uh, was, it seems to be, as they said, he was very, uh, abusive but he loved his dad dearly and when he died he was in prison for not for the deaths of these uh these young men but he was in it was for sodomy yes on a 16 year old right it was before he was ever caught with any in, in a different area it was in iowa the book that I've been reading about him really went into great detail about his childhood and his father was extremely abusive, um, emotionally, verbally. Um, he, you know, he had kind of that spare the rod, spoil the child mentality and, you know, would just beat him silly really. And, um, he was a heavy drinker. He, um, it talks about, you know, how his father was such a homophobe that, you know, he would often make comments to, uh, young Gacy that, you know, he was queer, he's a mama's boy, he's a he, she, he, he called him a lot of names. And, um, you know, Gacy as a young child did some, did some very, you know, strange things. Um, he was caught taking his mother's panties with him under, um, underneath the, uh, front porch, which was kind of his little secret hiding place and, um, just different things that he would do when he got caught with his mother's lingerie. And, um, he kind of just, from what I can tell, he kind of always had this, uh, homosexual, um, sort of tendency and he was very ashamed of it. And he spent a great deal of his life trying to be something he was not, trying to be a macho man, trying to earn his father's approval, trying to make his father um, believe in him, just like see his worth. And he was just never really able to do that. And then when his father died while he was in prison, and, you know, I guess his father had, you know, when he went to prison, his father had started drinking very, very heavily, he died of cirrhosis of the liver. And so uh, John Wayne Gacy took that very personal and, and kind of saw it as like the ultimate failure of his father that, you know, and really felt to blame for it. Um, prior, prior to his dad dying there for... Uh, you know, a few years, like you said, he was married. Um, he had gotten married and he had kind of, um, 
earned a position within the community. He was uh, very influential and he was rubbing elbows with some powerful and influential people. He had gotten into politics. Um, and I think, you know, he had finally kind of gotten what he wanted from his dad. He, he got that respect that he had wanted. Now, did it discuss his, um, what happened to him when he was six? The man that uh, taught him to wrestle. He was an adult Yeah, man. that was his dad's friend. And the dad brought a gun to his friend and said, hey, get the, you know, whatever out of here. And that uh, Gacy describes it as he was being taught wrestling moves where his face would be clamped in between the man's legs. Yeah. 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 So there was a lot of, you know, there was also um, talk about a neighbor girl when he was, um, I want to say four or something. He was a toddler and the, the neighbor girl who was mentally challenged, she was 15, had taken him in a field and pulled his pants down. And so he had been kind of, you know, repeatedly abused, uh, abused. Yeah. In every way. You know, he'd been abused sexually, been abused mentally, emotionally, physically, um, in every sort of way. And mom was, mom was this overprotective kind of helicopter mom. Um, you know, she had told him he had this bottleneck heart and had all these problems. He couldn't be involved in sports because of this heart problem. And, you know, years later when he's, uh, you know, being observed and, you know, in, uh, as an adult, there's, they're finding there's nothing wrong with his heart. Um, but she just really sheltered him and tried to protect him. And, you know, I, I mean, the sad thing is here, she was trying to protect him from, I guess, getting hurt playing sports, but I mean, really she should have been protecting him from. And we don't mom. know what actually went on in that household to where, how she did protect or how the father may have turned on her either. Those dynamics, uh, I don't, I don't have any information on how that worked. Well, one thing I found really interesting, and I felt like it kind of, you know, because you and I, we do this thing a lot where we draw parallels between, you know, cases, and we'll go, oh, that's that's kind of similar, that's kind of similar. Correct. Was that during this time when, you know, before he went to prison the first time for sodomy. Um, when he was, you know, rubbing elbows with the rich and powerful and, you know, kind of had developed this position within the community where he was respected and influential. He was married to this Marilyn. Uh, and Marilyn's father was the franchise owner of Kentucky Fried Chicken and had offered him this position within that company that he couldn't refuse, which is where he actually gained, you know, some of his victims that he molested were uh, employees of the Kentucky Fried Chicken that he was overseeing. But Not that he killed, but that he... No, yeah, that was before, you know, it seems like it kind of progressed because in the beginning, you see him uh, really more victimizing these young boys sexually, but not killing them. You know, these young boys are in their teens, 15, 16, you know, very young teenage boys and he would kind of manipulate them, coerce them to come over and he would show them films and, 
you know, these films stag would often, films. yeah, stag films, they would often have, you know, copulation and show, you know, oral sex between men. And he would, um, he would coerce them or sometimes he would bribe them or p- even pay them to uh, engage in these acts with him. But then he, you know, he didn't kill him. He just let him go. But that came back to haunt him when one of the boys told it, told uh, his father. And then uh, when he went to run for a position. The child's father was actually, uh, was he a senator? I can't. Um, he was he he was in political. He, he was in a political power position. And like you say, the Waterloo JCs, he was trying to get people to come to join the JCs and they would have beer stag films like you were saying and they had a room with a woman in there for these boys to come in other words he was bringing the boys in for him to do what he ever he was fantasizing about and but he knew to bring them in he needed to have a woman and she would be in a room and uh, they'd be showing stag films and drinking beer. Right. So I, I think that, I mean, I don't think this is necessarily um, an uncommon thing within political groups or, or, or social groups of people, you know, that are kind of considered high society to, well, engage in these immoral sexual acts. So what they talked about in the book also was that Marilyn had at one point when he brought a young boy home, I guess this, this uh, kid was 18. So at least he was legally an adult, but still he, it was, you know, this kid that he had brought home with him that worked for him at KFC and he sent Marilyn in to have sex with the boy and then she slept with them, and then they became swingers. Which they were, yes, they were swingers. They did wife swapping, and then uh, and then you had him coming in after, you know, once they were finishing up, Marilyn and the young boy. He came in, said, "You owe me," and then later, you know, had the boy perform oral sex on him as his kind of payment for letting him sleep with his wife, and and uh, the kid had lost his virginity to his wife. So just a lot of really, really creepy shit, you know, just really creepy shit that went on. But like you said, it's, it's crazy how if you, if you pull back some of the, okay, the, the everyday into it depth of it and just go, okay, this happened, this happened, this happened you start seeing a pattern, not just in serial killers, but you see a pattern in, in society. Right. Yeah. I I definitely think that, you know, and and maybe it's because when you are rich and powerful and you kind of get this like sense that you could get away with anything. So you start to kind of dabble and, you know, when there's these temptations and something's put in front of you and you just go a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further. And, you know, I mean, where does it stop? At what point does it end? Where, what is that line that you will not cross? And the police, because he had these positions, because he was, he met Rosalind Carter, the secret service gave him, um, credit, credit, what is it? Uh, 
accreditation, not accreditation, what the word for, they were allowed, he was allowed to be near, he was allowed to be near Rosalind Carter. This was after he got out of jail for the um, sexual assault on this 16 year old. And he also did parades. So he was a very a popular member of that community because he could raise money, he could manipulate, he could talk his way into things. He volunteered. He did a lot of volunteering, a lot of fundraising. Um, Children's he, hospitals. He was known to dress up as a clown. I want to say Pogo. two clowns. Pogo. Pogo and Patches. And Patches, yeah. Pogo and Patches. And he would go into um, senior citizens' homes and hospitals and just you know, volunteer himself to entertain the, these sick kids and these elderly folks. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I, um, I wanted to, to put this in that, or throw this in here of one of his, uh, victims that he killed the Sissick, uh, his sister, Patty Sissick of rich, who is the sister of John Sissick, who was killed by Gacy. And uh, um, she said, the police went by what they were being told by Gacy. So that's, they would go to Gacy and Gacy would say such and such. And that's what the police would report to the media and what the police would say back to the victims' families. And then she went on to say, they didn't know these people they didn't even know who these people were. They had no idea if it was a senator's kid or a runaway kid, which they didn't at the time. They were pulling these kids' bodies out, and they were sitting there saying they were prostitutes, and they didn't even know who these kids were yet. They didn't even have the names. The police told the reporters, nobody cares about them. And she said, you know whether It's drugs. Who cares that they are they are still people and the Chicago police who on many occasions could have pre could have prevented this from happening um, didn't so it's it just shows the power that he had it seems to me and just while you're talking I'm, I'm, I'm reading you know over this book a little bit more and it seems like it was this, um, for him, this conflict of interest because it was like his father made fun of him, called him queer, you know, he, she, all that different stuff. And it was like, he had these homosexual tendencies, but he, he was very ashamed of it. And it was like, even though he was, um, technically homosexual, he had a hate for homosexuals and he had a hate for his own. I think he had a hate for himself. He had a hate for his own tendencies, his own, um, compul you know, compulsions, his own urges. So a lot of his victims were gay men. I'm reading here about a young man, a 26 year old named Jeff Rignall who was walking home from 
uh, a Chicago gay bar when Gacy pulled up next to him in a black Oldsmobile and lured him into the car. Then he took him somewhere and strapped him to what Rignall described as a pillory device that held his neck and arms immobile. And then Gacy, and he says another individual who was there, but he never saw his face. And that, that the two of them, he um, saw the blonde hair, right. Forced him to have to perform oral sex and sodomized him and, um, and actually raped him with several objects. Um, then Rignall was dumped at the base of a statue. So alive, he, he yes, was alive. Alive, and he, alive. Yeah. If you see his face, if you see this man's face, after they used chloroform on him, his face was burnt, just total burnt. And um, yeah, it was it was it was a tough go because in the seventies, when this man was uh, taken by you know taken and held hostage, he um, they did not report something like that for some reason because it was a gay encounter as a crime. Right. Well, it says here that the police lost interest in the case after they found out that he was homosexual. So he hired an attorney and he sued in civil court and he did win, um, says $3,000. He settled for $3,000, which is just a disgrace. But, um, what's interesting about that. And, you know, I mean, also the fact that, um, the charge in Iowa that left him on parole, uh, he, he got out after 18, 18 months. I'm sorry. Did you hear what he did? And it was called Anamara's penitentiary. And he saw where he could, um, he manipulated everyone there. He manipulated the warden. He found where there was a, uh, a couple that had a miniature golf course that was just done, rotten, whatever. It was over. So he read about it. He called the couple, not saying that he was an inmate, and um, told them that he could they could get a tax break if they donated it to the penitentiary. So they sent over a truck, got that golf course, and they, the inmates put it up and put it together, and they had a mini, miniature golf course on the uh, pen, in the penitentiary at, on the grounds. And then he would, uh, only certain people could wear white shirts, like that are in the prison administration type. He would wear a white shirt because he became buddies with the people in the laundry. So he would wear a white shirt and he was a cook and he, he just kept doing these things. It wasn't just that he was an exemplary inmate. He went above and beyond in manipulation while he was doing it. And he got out in 18 months rather than what was it? A 10 year sentence. Yeah. I, I can't remember, but you know, what was interesting about that is that, his lawyer and I believe the prosecutor even so they were they were all saying you know since he hadn't really been in any trouble before they were wanting probation 
and the judge wasn't having it. So the judge gave him his full sentence because of his history of molestation. See, he got out on June 18th, 1970 on parole. And they're saying that around 1975, he developed an, his alter ego, uh, which was a homicide detective named Jack Hanley. He was a, a tough homicide cop who was muscular, commanding, and a devoted hater of homosexuals. Uh, and so he became the alter ego, the mental, mental partner for Gacy, and later became his scapegoat because he would say that when he would start drinking and taking drugs, that this Jack would take over and that Gacy, he, you know, as Jack, he would do things that he never would have done sober. Um, but a lot of the things he would say, he didn't even remember. Uh, he didn't remember a lot of the things he'd done with the bodies before he buried them under his house because Jack was in charge, he'd say. In February of 1971, shortly after being released from prison, he uh, forced a young man, a teenage boy, into his car from the Greyhound station and tried to force him to have sex with him. He was still on parole. Long story short, with that, the kid failed to show up to testify, so he got off. He ended up being uh, released from parole on October of 1971, and obviously um, the Iowa Parole Board never caught wind of the charges, of the sexual assault charges that, were, that had been filed against him. Yeah, there's another, another example of how, you know, the system, you know, he just kind of slipped through the cracks. He just kind of got away with it. And it's not, these 33 victims, four were thrown in the river, uh, 26 were in the crawl space, and the remainder... 27. Oh, I thought it was 26 in the crawl space, and the remainder were on the property. However, he also spent six months in Las Vegas. And they also, there's also a, um, a property that he would, was seen digging on because he was doing some of his construction work on a property in Chicago. And he was witnessed, it was a detective that saw this happening and, um, that was on the corner of um, North Elston Avenue in Miami. And they, they did do some digging there, but not in the correct places. As a sonar company uh, reportedly wrote a letter stating that they should have been in uh, the all, some, uh, several other areas. But I think the establishment just wanted it to be over. He was going to jail for these killings and it was costing too much money to find every one of his victims. He also said, which could have been a lie, that he threw a body just in the woods near the high school, close to his house. You know, I, 
you just don't know how many. He said he's there's closer to 45 victims. That's out of Gase's mouth. Then again, he lies a lot. But there's just never going to be an answer to some of these people. There's just not going to be an answer from the victims' families. You mentioned Las Vegas, and Vegas was, that was before he was married. That was when he left his parents' home um, in his earlier years uh, for a few months, and he had gone to work for a, a mortuary. And while he was working for that mortuary, he ended up getting fired because the deceased bodies were being found unclothed with, you know, with their clothes just kind of like folded and set beside them. But they began to suspect that, that Gacy was doing unmentionable things to these, uh, these corpses. So. And of course he denies that. Well, they, they never, they never pursued it. They, um, they dropped it. He let, he quit and he went back home and they dropped it. But that's kind of, uh, you know, that's the documentation of something that happened early on really before anything else is the suspicion that he may have been, you know, committing these sexual acts with these necrophilia right there. Yeah. Yeah. So my God. I mean, yeah, this, this is one fucked up dude. Um, yeah. And, and a lot, and he had many years to, it's not like he was caught early, early on. Like you said, he slipped through the cracks. He had many years, many years. Well, and, and it's so, I think it's really stereotypical too, because he was somebody and dare I say, because I don't, you know, necessarily see anywhere in here where he was diagnosed as a sociopath, but, um, you know, to me, he had schizophrenia, he, he had schizophrenia, supposedly, well, um, split personality. Uh, he developed this alter ego, but, um, but he does seem to really display some sociopathic tendencies. Um, especially with being, you know, so charming and having the ability to, um, you know, really excel in, in, uh, the community and he, his own businesses. Yeah. He, yeah. He had these positions in the community where helped him, I think, to get away, you know, with what he was doing because people really wouldn't suspect that he would do these things. Um, but really underneath he was a really disturbed individual and at the, at the root of it all, at the root of it all was his father. The root of it all was his, was his childhood and the abuse. That is really, um, I think that's really what created this monster. Well, you've got the nature versus nurture because so many people have had it horrible and have not grown up to be serial killers. So many people have had head injuries and not grown up to be serial killers. So many people, the seizures and the illness, have had these and uh, previous sexual abuse and not grown up to be serial killers. However, they all they had to have contributed because there was uh, another BTK, I believe, that had the perfect childhood. So. It's just, and, and it's like, what is the recipe exactly? 
Like what, you know, obviously you can take, you can take one person and they go through abuse and they have all these problems and then they, and then instead of it turning them into uh, an abuser themselves, they become incredibly empathetic and they spend their entire lives, you know, trying to help people instead of hurt them. And then you've got these other people. And I just, I don't know what exactly the recipe for disaster is, but it just seems like with some people, you, you expose them to the trauma, you expose them to the abuse and it, it literally is a recipe for disaster. It, it turns them into just absolute monsters that prey on innocent people. And, um, it's just, it's really sad. And just one more thing about him before we move on is I just want to say that, you know, um, the book here says that he had an IQ of 118. So he was, he was not a ignorant person. He was actually quite, uh, he was pretty smart, you know, and especially he, he had, um, he had dropped out of high school and then when he was in prison, he got his GED. But yeah, because he couldn't get, um, he wasn't able to get parole unless he got that. Yeah, he got his GED and he had even taken a college course. But it's like, even, even as a high school dropout, he still had an IQ of 118, which is pretty good. Right. Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty high. Um, and he, people like to say how intelligent he was, but I'm thinking, but he got caught. He didn't think he was going to get caught, but he got caught. So I have a, I grapple with that. I, it's like, man, are you really that intelligent if you're getting caught? Honestly, I, I think, I don't, I think it doesn't matter how smart you are. You could be Einstein. You're going to get caught eventually. You keep doing it. I mean, he did it so many times before he was caught. So I don't think that has anything to do with whether or not he's smart. I mean, you keep doing it, you're going to eventually get caught. And, and I think there's also, you know, there's also divine intervention that's involved in that. I think, you know, that whether you want to say karma or God or whatever it is, eventually it's going to catch up with you, you know, eventually it is. Um, so, and thank God and thank God it does. You know, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for, you know, that karmic uh, presence in our life and our world that, you know, eventually these monsters do get caught. It doesn't seem like soon enough sometimes, but, um, but they do eventually. They slip up. They get too cocky. That's it. It's the ego. Yeah. Like I said, I wanted to kind of, at the end of it, try to determine what kind of serial killer he was. What, what type would you, where would you put him? He was organized. I, I definitely say organized. I definitely say he was sexual and he wanted power, definite power. All right. So he's, he would be, uh, what would be considered hedonistic. I would say so because of the way he murdered. I mean, he would put a twist on, he'd do what's called a rope trip trick and he'd put a rope around their neck with a, a long, um, piece of wood at the back and twist it and twist it and twist it until he choked them. Now, most of these were, of course, they could not find a cause of death because in those days, they buried on top of each other, top of each other, top of each other. When they first found the first three bones, they were three left femurs. So, you know, it was a, it was way back when, and it was hard to 
find who was who. But yeah, a hedonistic, I would think, is is very appropriate. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so that concludes our episode on John Wayne Gacy, the first part of our series on serial killers. So check back with us soon, and we'll have our next one up next week. And Justice Warriors, thank you for joining us today. If you haven't already, please check out my book titled Memoirs of the Justice Warrior, which can be found through the Kindle Bookstore and on Amazon. And we have a lot of really exciting announcements coming up in the next 30 to 60 days. So make sure you follow the Justice Warriors podcast Facebook page. Until then, keep fighting for justice. Bye. Bye.